Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Nerdy Apologist podcast. For some crazy reason, we were asked to actually run the show at an apologetics conference at Northbrook Church in West Tennessee. This conference is called C3, and it really focuses on how to help Christians engage the culture that they're in. This is a three-weekend-long conference, and each weekend we have a different guest that tackles a different question related to apologetics. During this particular session, we had Dr. Hunter Baker on to talk about Christianity and politics. He helps us think through things such as a Christian's role in politics and how Christians should approach voting altogether. Next week, we will have on the apologist Paul Copen, who's going to be tackling the question, Is God a Moral Monster? So subscribe to our podcast to get alerted when that episode will air next week. Thank you so much, and I hope that you enjoy this session. If you're our guest, we're glad that you're here. Um, with this is, I don't know what year this is, probably like year eight for our Christianity and Culture Conference. And uh, this is something that we started to kind of do something different that's more interactive for us as, as Christians to think how our faith and how our culture inter, uh, intertwine and how we can be more uh, like Jesus in different areas of our culture. So um, I'm going to let Katie tell you a little bit more about how we're doing it this year, and uh, then we'll let the Truth for Doubt folks take it away. Uh, let me say a prayer. We'll get started. Lord, thanks so much for our time tonight. I thank you for uh, Hunter Baker and his willingness to come back and share some of his insight with us. Lord, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds are open to uh, think intentionally and biblically about how you would have us interact in the area of politics uh, as Christians. And so we look forward to what we're going to learn tonight. And uh, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have uh, engaged in the culture through this podcast, and so I pray you'd continue to bless that work and that ministry as well, and we look forward to, again, to what we're going to learn tonight and how we can apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's give it up for Katie Wilson. Okay, so yes, I'm Katie Wilson, um, and welcome to Truth For Doubt Live. I'm tonight, Michael Badger. Wave, wave your hand. Uh, and Dr. Ethan Hunley. And I, um, we are recording this with a live studio audience. Just kidding. It's just a live audience. But I just wanted to say that. For our podcast. So our podcast is called The Nerdy Apologist. Um, and so we have a live audience because uh, we were asked to host this year's Christianity and Culture Conference, which we call C3, for our church, which Chuck already talked about. And... Um, a little bit more about that. This conference seeks to address um, relevant cultural issues from the perspective of Christian faith and biblical truth. So our next few podcasts that will um, uh, be coming up may be a little different than in the past because it will be just like this. We'll have a live audience and we will be interviewing different people each night. Um, so our podcast is part of the Truth for Doubt ministry, which seeks to provide apologetic resources like this podcast, and um, we do this through deep theological and apologetic discussions, along with interviews with individuals from a variety of ministries and walks of life. 
and we're all super nerdy, so we add that in there too. Um, so uh, tonight, we'll be interviewing Dr. Hunter Baker, and he will be speaking. Yes, give him a round of applause. And he's going to be speaking on the topic of Christian faith and politics. And he is no stranger to our podcast. He's been a guest on here twice before. Um, And he serves as the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. He's a university fellow and associate professor of political science at Union University here in Jackson, Tennessee. He is the author of three books. So you might want to check these out um, if you want to learn more. The End of Secularism, Secularism. Political Thought, A Student's Guide, and The System Has a Soul. And he's contributed to chapter, in chapters to several other books. He's written for a wide variety of print and digital publications, and he is the winner of the 2011 Michael Novak Award. Um, and he's also a research fellow of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He co-founded the publication The City in 2008, which is still published today. So, without further ado, uh, Michael, Dr. Ethan, and Dr. Hunter Baker. All right. Thanks, Katie. Uh, And thank you guys so much uh, for being here. This is really exciting. Um, I'm still kind of baffled they're actually letting us do this. So, uh, we hope that you enjoy it. And Dr. Baker, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We're... First question that we're going to ask you is, it's, it's an easy question. Uh, how did you become a Christian, and what drew you to politics, and what, is, like, what are your Thanksgivings like? Yeah, I am. Uh, just say, how am I? Let's see if we're on. Are we on? on? Like, hello? How about now? There we there go. Uh, yeah, the, uh, do you say, what are my Thanksgivings like? I'm just really curious, man, because... <laughs> The two things you're not supposed to talk about yeah. is your specialty. Oh, right, so, right, yes. I get it now. A lot of rolled eyes when you pull up your car. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my, uh, my story of becoming a Christian is, is pretty unusual, I think. I mean, I, um, I went to Florida State University. Um, I, I spent my high school years in Pensacola, Florida, uh, and um, was in one of those gigantic Florida high schools um, you know, my graduating class was probably 500 people, something like that. Um, went to Florida State, which was massive. You know, back then it was probably 30 to 35,000 people. It's probably more than that now. And, um, you know, I, people at Union have heard me say this. I was completely lost. Uh, I don't mean spiritually lost. I mean, I mean, I was lost, lost. I, you know, I had never done laundry, for example, ever. Uh, you know, I had grown up where I threw a towel into the hamper every time I used it, uh, and my mother would wash it, and, you know, and I had not done the dishes and just nothing. I mean, you know, my mother had done everything for me, and I went to Florida State, and, you know, my parents had sent me with three towels, and in three days, I was out of towels. I was like, you know, what do I do now, right? You know, uh, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how to do anything, and, um, and on top of that, uh, I had always had my life pretty carefully controlled by my parents. Um, you know, uh, I didn't have to make a lot of moral choices in high school, things like that. And so I, when I went to college, and it was just total um, unbounded freedom, right. uh, you know, I just kind of fell right into the, the scene in my dorm, right? You know, I have told people that 
that, you know, if you wanted me to send my daughter to Florida State University, you'd probably have to fight me, right? You know, I mean, just because, and that was in the late 80s. I can't imagine what it's like now, right? right. And, um, and I just, I fell right into it, and I was a very secular person. I was such a secular person, I didn't even know the word secular, mm. right? You know, uh, uh, I mean, I had grown up in the South, and I, th- I think the myth is that everybody who grows up in the South is a Christian, um, but not me, right? You know, uh, you know, back when I was growing up, uh, it was very common to have, maybe they would show Jesus of Nazareth at Easter on television, like on NBC or something like that. And, um, and I would watch, and I would, be, I would sit there and I'd just be thinking, why are they nailing him to that cross? You know, I just I couldn't figure it out. It didn't make any sense to me, right? And I found, <clears throat> and I, when I was in high school, it was very much the period of sort of the televangelist scandals. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of assumed that anybody who was very obviously religious something was wrong with them. Um, I was embarrassed by the word Jesus. Uh, You know, I remember, um, I remember being asked by somebody from Campus Crusade, I came out of the the cafeteria one day, and somebody from Campus Crusade kind of caught me, you know, they were more aggressive in the evangelism. And, uh, you know, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And I was like, get away from me. You know, I I, I didn't understand it. I was confused by it. And, um, you know, uh, I guess the short way to tell, um, well, it's already not short, but the, sh- the short way to say this is, is that as I fell into the kind of that culture of drinking and partying, and, you know, I can remember going to a party at a guy's apartment, and there was just pornography on the screen in his apartment, you know, and I had never seen that before either, right? Uh, and that was shocking, but I, but I remember, you know, just those nights of drinking and uh, passing out on people's floors in their apartments, uh, you know, being soaking wet because I had been in the apartment complex pool before that, you know, with all my clothes, and, um, and particularly one night, I just, I just totally overdid it, radically overdid it, maybe 14 vodkas or something like that in a single night, and uh, the next day I was so sick, so devastatingly sick, and um, I just prayed. I mean, like so many people, they pray, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble. I need God to save me, right? I wasn't looking for like salvation, salvation. I was looking for like not, not to die, right? <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, my mom's side of the family is kind of Catholic. And so I had kind of a transactional view of the faith. And so it's like, okay, God, I'll promise you something. And then maybe you'll do something for me. Right. And so I told God, I'll go to a religious meeting of some kind. And uh, so I did. I went to a meeting, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And um, the crazy thing is, is that they never tried to evangelize me at all. Never. Uh, They had their meetings, and I watched them. You know, they had their overhead projector uh, with lyrics on it, uh, you know, the like that you crank, you know, and, uh, and it was really, in my mind, it was really dorky, uh, you know, I was just uh, totally uncool, and I didn't think the people in the group were cool, but I kept going back, you know, this is, you know, I can't really make sense of the whole Calvinist free will kind of thing, because I can kind of see both, right, I mean, 
when I look at it one way, it's like I made all the choices, and when I look at it another way, it's like God choreographed it, you know? And, uh, but I just kept going back. And the thing that really changed for me is that the people in the group who initially did not impress me at all, I thought, this is the most admirable group of people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And that, that made me want to know more, right? And, um, you know, the, the woman who I married, she, who you know, uh, Dr. Ruth Baker, then Ruth Martin. Right. Um, I remember uh, I told her I, t- I tried to witness to somebody and totally botched it because I didn't know what I was doing, right? I didn't know anything. And um, she said, did you ever think about reading any books about the Christian faith? You know, and so, so I did. I started to read. I started to read a lot. And um, the thing that happened to me as I started to read is I, 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 and this is where the political significance comes in as well, I began to believe that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. And once I believed that, that's when, that's when I went from, like, I'm trying to be a Christian because I like these people to... I'm trying to be a Christian because I think Jesus Christ is the Lord, right? Uh, there's only one king on this earth who is worthy of the name. That's Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and so I began to understand that, and that's what really changed. And hopefully that's been the governing reality of my life since that time. Right. Yeah. So our, uh, our next question, um, and, and this is sort of, you know, leading into, you know, <clears throat> our, our questions about politics and, and how us as Christians can um, uh, approach that and navigate that whole world. Um, um, so with the hostility that is often seen sort of in the public square um, uh, in regard to politics, um, you know, I know that labels and definitions can get blurred and confusing. And so if we're going to talk about politics, um, I'd like to start with maybe just make, making a few definitions, um, you know, so that we can define some terms. So um, if you wouldn't mind um, just sort of expounding on some of the differences between uh, terms like right versus left versus liberal, um, independent, um, so that we can really accurately you know, have a discussion. Yeah, it's, um, so first of all, political labels are very confusing. Um, yeah. Because if you, uh, if, you, if you take a word like liberal, okay, liberal really relates to the word liberty, mm-hmm. right? So like libertarian, liberal, liberty, right? Right. And, um, and so you would think that liberal means somebody who wants free markets and small government. But that is not what liberal means in the United States, right? In the, in the Europeans still kind of use it that way. Um, but in the United States, when we say liberal, we're typically talking about somebody who thinks that the government should be larger and should do more things and have higher taxes and things like that, right? Uh, so in our context, liberal is the word that we associate with kind of the left side of the political spectrum, meaning that uh, more government intervention, uh, government is larger, um, you have less freedom, but the reason for that is to try to create greater social equality, things like that, right? That's sort of the left, the way we understand it in the U.S. 
and then the side that we call conservative, um, uh, at least if you think about it in a Ronald Reagan sort of a way, is kind of the smaller government, lower taxes, mm -hmm. more individual freedom, right? Um, but it's also, it's also complicated because those categories are not exactly the way they used to be anymore either, because you take a figure like Donald Trump, um, who I know, you know, is super polarizing, right? And so understand I'm not, I'm not endorsing, I'm trying to be descriptive, okay? Um, Trump, in my mind, if I was trying to look at American politics and trying to categorize him, I would say that he fits in the Democratic Party of like the late 50s and early 60s. That that's kind of the, you know, kind of protect the American worker, you know, don't let free trade damage American manufacturing, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and, and so obviously that has now become sort of what the Republican Party is, whereas before it was more about like free trade and things like that. Yeah. So that's kind of where we are, right? And so, right. so but when, generally when we think about collectivism or a bigger role for the state, we think about the left. And when we think about individualism and a smaller role for the state, we think about the right. Yeah. Okay. And just, just to follow up on that, uh, and you sort of mentioned this um, uh, just a second ago, but, you know, I, I feel like culturally we sort of see um, the left really more, at least seem to be more concerned about um, social good, um, you know, providing health care, providing uh, education, um, uh being concerned about refugees, the poor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and there's sort of that, um, that thing that kind of seems that way. Um, while when you look at the right, it seems that they're a little less concerned about that. Um, but then I know, at least in the culture of the South, I find that most Christians lean more right. And so from a Christian perspective, um, you know, wh what is your opinion on that of, you know, how we should really be approaching, approaching those yeah, things, you know? Yeah, this is, so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier had to do with, um, at least I think you mentioned this sort of hostility in politics or the, mm -hmm. the emotionally charged atmosphere. Um, one thing that I think that would be a good principle for everybody to kind of have is a principle of charity when they think about the way other people think about politics, right? So, <clears throat> so generally speaking, my, my governing assumption is that people embrace the things in politics that they embrace because they think it will be for the good, right? right. So, so if you're more liberal, uh, it's because you think that's better for human beings, and if you are uh, more conservative, likewise, right? For the good of the many, yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, I think that one of the big dividing lines, and this is, this is a classic dividing line in politics, depends on your optimism about what human beings will do with power, right? right. If, you, if you feel very confident that human beings with power will make good things happen, then you tend to be liberal. Right, you know, you tend to kind of, you know, yes, we can, we can give the government a lot of power, and it will help bring about the millennium. Right, you know, I mean, good things will happen, and and we can, maybe we can even have kind of a utopia. Right, and people on the right, 
tend to emphasize more uh, human beings are sinful and it's dangerous to give them power, right? And so, uh, so I would rather uh, not give the government a lot of power. And, you know, you can, uh, there's some, I, I can't remember if it was Niebuhr or Chesterton who said something like that, um, that original sin is kind of an empirically proven doctrine, right? You know, because we have seen so many instances where people with power do terrible things with it, right? I mean, the uh, Cuba's a pretty good example. Uh, Soviet Union's a pretty good example. Uh, China of today is a pretty good example. So, you know, all, all things where the impetus is, is to bring about <coughs> paradise, right? And you end up with something that ends up being fairly oppressive. So with, with those definitions out of the way and with kind of a, I guess, a little bit more of an understanding of, of the difference between left and the right, what is the guiding principle for Christians when they approach voting? Um, or, or should that even be a concern for Christians? Should Christians even be concerned with politics? And if so, how do you, I guess, ground that in Scripture as well? Yeah. Um, this is... This is a really interesting question. I may say that about everything that you ask me. Uh, uh, part of it is, is I, you know, I'm thinking about the, the 20th century, and we used to, you know, originally the, the fracture in the American church was between what we called the fundamentalists and the modernists, right? Now, fundamentalist has become kind of a bad word now. Um, you know, I, one philosopher said fundamentalist just means the, the person I don't like on my right, you know, something like that. Uh, but, but the original meaning of fundamentalist had to do with a theological controversy. Um, in the early 20th century, there was a real break in the American church where some people in the church started to say um, the Bible is not the inspired word of God. Jesus did not rise from the dead. Um, Mary was not a virgin, you know, things like that, right? And this was sort of theological liberalism. And uh, on the other side, you had folks who said, no, you know, these are sort of the rock-bottom, uncompromising truths of Scripture. We cannot go away from those. Those were the fundamentalists. And there was a famous set of books published called The Fundamentals. And um, the people who wrote The Fundamentals were actually amazing academics, you know, dedicated Christians from some of the most prestigious institutions. Um, and that was the defense of the faith and the fundamentals. And so the people who agreed with the fundamentals were the fundamentalists, right? We don't, we don't use the word that way anymore, right? You know, now we're just like, you know, that backward knuckle dragging person, you know, but that's not, that's not kind of how the word was originally used. <clears throat> and, but the people who were the fundamentalists sort of lost that battle early on. I mean, that's really how you got the mainline churches was that the sort of the, the more liberal group kind of won the battle and kind of had control of the churches, right? I mean, even the United Methodist Church that's just now having a split, it's the conservatives who are leaving, right? right. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> as it was with the Episcopal Church as well, right? And so they appeared to lose and they separated, Right? They kind of went off by themselves. And one of the things that those fundamentalists said was, we're not going to be involved in politics. Right? You know, politics is dirty. Right? You know, and it's not a, it's not a worthy activity, and we're out of this thing. Right? 
And, um, and really it was the evangelicals. So this is a group different from the fundamentalists. The, they originally called them the, the neo-evangelicals. And that was people like Billy Graham, right? And uh, Billy Graham and Carl F.H. Henry, um, they said, no, we, we can't withdraw from American culture, right? We're, of course, we're having some of these debates right now, right? You know, the Benedict Option, things like that. Should we withdraw or should we be engaged? And they were having that same debate. And so guys like Billy Graham were saying, no, you know, we have to be engaged uh, in politics. It's not dirty, right? You know, the sovereignty of God, you know, sovereignty of Jesus Christ applies to everything, including your political activity. And, and so that's what we have to think about. And so, you know, people talk about, I'll give you a couple of scriptural references. One is uh, Romans 13, okay? Uh, and a lot of people read Romans 13 and they just sort of get, well, the lesson is to submit to the government, right? Okay. Um, so I got a couple of things to say about that. First of all, in our context, the government sort of is the people, right? So, so we're not living in a dictatorship or a, a you know, a, a, a monarchy. We live in a democratic republic. Uh, we have the ability to vote. So in a sense, the American people sort of share the sovereignty, right, in our system. And so what I would argue is that every person in here Right? You all possess a little piece of that sovereignty. And you're accountable to God for your use, for your stewardship of what you have, of what you're blessed to have in the American system. Right? Now, you might not have it somewhere else. You have it here. And so, uh, so it would be wrong, I think, to throw that away. Right? And to just say, well, you know, I don't like it. It's dirty. I don't want to mess with it. You should do something with that. And, you know, if it's the kind of thing that uh, my friend John Mark Reynolds, he says, if you find it really hard to follow politics or, or it's just not your thing, find somebody you trust, right? Find somebody you trust who can, who can minister to you that way and kind of, kind of go with them on that. So the first thing I would say is, to, is that you should be involved, right? <clears throat> now, the other thing about submission is uh, I think a lot about... Christ contemplating the image of Caesar on the coin, right? You know, he's asked about whether, whether you should pay taxes. And um, whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's image is on the coin, right? Uh, and he concludes that you should pay the taxes. And a lot of people leave it there. But he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and what's the rest? And to God what is God's, right? And the, the thing that seems very clear to me from that is, is that there are some things that belong to Caesar. God has given it, right? Luther, uh, Martin Luther has this great piece in a kind of a small book called On Secular Authority where he talks about government. And he says, government is something that God gives to us in his mercy, right? Because Luther says the number of, the number of actual Christians is probably really small, Right? And uh, there's a lot of folks out there in the world who are scary, right? You know, who do bad things. And um, God gives us government to restrain this evil. Government's job is to restrain the evil, right? And so, so when government is doing what it most should do, it will restrain and punish and coerce those who would do evil, right? Um, so that's, that, is, that is sort of the lane, Right? That is the task that God gives government. 
but it seems clear to me, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's. He doesn't give Caesar everything, right? There's some stuff that is not Caesar's. There's some stuff that is God's, right? Uh, Caesar does not get to tell you uh, to follow some cult that is not uh, aligned with Christianity, right? You know, uh, so, so we kind of get a, we, a religious liberty is one of the things we think about in this context, right? Um, but another thing is, I would argue, uh, and I don't want to get too controversial, but I would argue that when the government redefines a fundamental institution like marriage, it probably has strayed from its lane, right? It probably has gone into territory that belongs to God and that he does not relinquish to the state. So that would be another thing to think about. Well, yeah, kind of with the follow-up with that. So, like, when it comes to these things that we, like, we hold dearly as Christians, like, like marriage, um, it's, I feel like it's hard to make a case to people who just don't accept the authority of the Bible um, to say, well, hey, you shouldn't mess with marriage. I mean, they see it as more of an equality thing. So one of the things that I've heard from a bunch of different political commentators, like, you know, Ben Shapiro and and people like that, is that uh, you should always make your case for your political leanings um, based off of a a secular argument. So what is your thoughts on, on that? Well, I wrote a whole book to the contrary, so that's... <laughs> all right, all right. So Let's move thing. on. That's all right, thing. so... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that, that book is called The End of Secularism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I argue that, uh, that there, there is... I think that we play these games where um, we say that you can't argue in religious terms, Right. Uh, I remember debating somebody about this. Uh, gosh, it's been a long time since we had this debate, but he was saying this, you should only argue in secular terms uh, about political matters. And I said, well, what about Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail? Because if you read letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. makes this amazing Christian argument, right? You know, uh, uh, he talks about Jesus. He talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He talks about Augustine. He talks about Aquinas. And I said that, and he said, well, I want to say it's okay when Martin Luther King Jr. does it, right? <laughs> well, it's okay. It's okay even when it's not Martin Luther King Jr., right? You know, it's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. And, and if people find that persuasive, that's fine. Many people will, and some people won't. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you mentioned um, religious liberty earlier, um, and, and that's sort of what my next question was uh, pertaining to, um, and I feel like it flows well into this next one, but you know, I feel like a, a fear that a lot of Christians have about um, the possibility of a, a left side or, or a democratic presidency is a, a loss of religious liberty that tends to be branded as... Uh, <coughs> as more of social tolerance. Um, yeah. You know, what's, what's your, um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's really a matter of uh, a very recent history. Um, you know, I, I was in law school in the late 90s, and um, boy, this is one of those sovereignty of God things, you know. I, uh, somehow I ended up applying for uh, a clerkship with a religious liberty law firm called the Rutherford Institute. And 
I became aware of their effort to push a piece of legislation called the Religious Liberty Protection Act, okay? This was probably 1998. <clears throat> and then the following summer, I went to work for Prison Fellowship on the same legislation, 1999. Um, now, just to, just to give a little context, a few years earlier, there had been a Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, passed by the House and Senate, both bodies, almost unanimously. Okay, I'm talking about all the big Democrats. Uh, Bill Clinton signed it, right? Uh, this was the actual piece of legislation that protected Hobby Lobby uh, just a few years ago, okay? Almost all the Democrats were in favor of it. And in fact, when I was doing this kind of work, the initial impulse that the religious liberty attorneys had was the Democrats are better on this issue than the Republicans. They care more about religious liberty than the Republicans. That obviously has totally changed, right? Um, the <clears throat> what what and the thing that happened was basically gay marriage um, and and gay rights. I mean, I remember going to the Capitol and uh, and the, one of the major uh, gay organizations is called the Human Rights Campaign, mm -hmm. um, and they were there to oppose the Religious Liberty Protection Act. And I was like, why are they doing that? I didn't even I didn't, you know I couldn't even understand it. Yeah. Now I understand, <laughs> right? It's very, it's very obvious now because, you know, from their perspective, um, if we protect the rights of Christians to uphold traditional marriage, then we're undermining uh, same-sex marriage and, from their perspective, social equality. Yeah. And, and it, it seems like a bit of a, of, a, uh, of a circular way of thinking where it, it almost doesn't make sense together, at least in my mind, um, do you mean religious liberty and gay marriage? Well, well, just the idea of um, you know being being open and tolerant to everyone's beliefs. Um, I guess until there's a belief that disagrees, you know, I, in my mind that doesn't make sense. <clears throat> I think I understand it though. Um, I think that what's going on is is that. So let's think about this, okay? Uh, and again, I always tell students because when you talk to young people about this, you have to be really. When I talk to young people about this, I'm walking on eggshells, okay? Um, but one of the things that I say, now I'm gonna make a comment to you, I'm not talking about the age of the earth, okay? I'm talking about human history. We have about five or 6,000 years of human history. That's all we have, right, in terms of a written history that we can access. Um, you know, the Chinese, I think, would claim they have the oldest, but even that, 6,000 years, maybe. Um, but through all of that history, until very, very recently, the most recent tiny slice of history, there is no gay marriage, right? Now, is there homosexuality? Of course, it's called the Roman Empire, it's called Greece, right? You know, right. It's there, right, it's there. But is there gay marriage? Is there, is there this model of the family? Is there this legally recognized marriage? There's not. Okay, it does not exist until like, you know, historically speaking, 60 seconds ago, okay? And I think that part of the reason that they have such great determination to kind of wipe out any opposition is, is that there's a fear that this new understanding is insecurely held, right? And that if they, if they do not succeed in kind of stamping it out, then it could be reversed. 
Uh, and actually, you know, I think about this also in terms of the Roman Empire. I read a fantastic book <coughs> uh, by Stephen D. Smith on um, sort of the concept of culture wars between Christians and pagans. And one of the things that he talked about was, you know, the, the Roman Empire is resolutely anti-Christian, right? And, and uh, you know, they, they had been tolerant with everybody except the Christians, because their proposition was, um, if you're a Christian, just, you know, kind of just say the words, right? Just, you know, you know yes, the emperor's a god, you know, yes, here's my pinch of incense, um, and that's it. We don't care if you believe it. We don't care if you do any, any of the other stuff. Just do that, right? And the Christians wouldn't do it, and, it, and they, they hated that. That drove them crazy. Because they're like, we're being so reasonable. Why won't you do this, right? You know, and the Christian's like, I can't. I can't do it, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. I can't. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. I can't do it, right? And, um, you know, of course, the, the amazing thing that happens is, is that the whole empire goes over, right? You know, uh, Constantine becomes the emperor and he becomes a Christian. And, you know, we know the story from there. But one of the things that we don't realize is that one of Constantine's descendants, um, I'm trying to remember if this was, this was Julian the Apostate, um, but one of his descendants was also, he was pagan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, he was determined to stamp this Christian thing out, right? Uh, and he was implementing a plan to make sure that none of the Christians would be allowed to teach in schools. I see. Right? It's a very clever plan, right? You know? Uh, he had the power. None of the Christians going to be allowed to teach in the schools. He could have probably decimated Christianity, um, you know, uh, providentially or accidentally, however you want to see it. He died uh, very shortly <laughs> after that. Uh, a straight arrow, so to speak, uh, you know, ended his life. Uh, and um, but but I think that the I think that the same sex marriage movement is proceeding along similar lines. It's like we're going to so thoroughly enmesh this understanding. And not only that, but anybody who holds the other understanding will be marginalized, mm-hmm. will be kept out, right? right? And I think that's why so many Christians are tense, is they're afraid that, that if they hold the traditional understanding of marriage, that they won't be allowed to be in certain professions. Right. They won't be allowed to run schools. They won't be allowed to work in hospitals. You know, I mean, all kinds of things like that. Anything that's touched by government funding or has accreditation or anything like that. Right, right. Yeah. And just to follow that up, um, how, you know, so speaking to a Christian, you know, in this setting, you know, especially with, with a, 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 uh, an election coming up, um, you know, how do we clearly advocate um, in the political world for our own, you know, religious freedoms yeah. without it, without it, being interpreted as intolerance, you know. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really serious challenge. Right. Um, the uh, because you know one of the things that really scared me when I first saw this starting to develop is that I realized if if this continues to go the way it's going, then anybody who advocates for traditional marriage is going to basically look like a racist, right, or a bigot, you know. And, and, of course, that's what has happened, right? That, that is the way the argument goes. Right. Um, you know, if, I were to, if, if you could imagine me being on any major talk show, 
and enunciating that understanding, right. it would be met with great hostility, right? And, right? and doubts about my fitness as a person. And, you know, yeah. I'm, I, I'm either insane or hateful or whatever, right? Uh, so, yeah, we, we have to advocate for it in the most winsome terms. So one of the things that I, that I say to young people is, um, I'll say, I'm not even going to try to convince you uh, that you should be against gay marriage. I'm going to try to convince you that people who believe in traditional marriage uh, exclusively are not crazy, right? That, that we are not insane, right? right? And so then I just kind of say, I kind of say, well, you know, so look, um, well, I don't have to give you a biblical figure. I'll give you Aristotle. Aristotle says that the fundamental unit of society is not the individual. He says the fundamental unit of society is the male-female pair. And the reason he says that is, is he says society has no future without the male-female pair. A society cannot extend itself into the future without a male-female pairing, right? In essence, a society is dead on arrival without that, right? Uh, that is the fundamental unit. Um, but also, obviously, there's sort of the, the, the anatomical point or the reproductive point, you know, just, uh, so is it really crazy to say that marriage is premised on this male-female uh, complementarity? And they say, no, it's not crazy, right? They don't have to grant me the whole thing, but they can say, it's not crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And we need to help people see that, yeah. that we're not being nuts, right. you know, when we <laughs> yeah. kind of make this argument. Exactly. Or biblically, male and female, he created them, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for answering our questions. Uh, we, uh, we're going to move into a time of Q&A. Um, we're, we're running just a little short on time, so if we don't get to all of your questions, uh, sorry. Um, they, uh, you can voice your complaints to Ethan afterwards. I'll take uh, him. He'll be right out there. Uh, but uh, So we're going to have people line up right here at the microphone if you have any questions right now. Um, and uh, as you guys are lining up, you know, not everybody at once. You got to calm down, everybody. Um, we uh, we also had some questions that were submitted to us as well. So we're going to go ahead and start with those. And if uh, while uh, Dr. Baker is answering those, if you can make your way right there and just line up behind that microphone as well. Uh, so starting off with the very first question, um, kind of shifting gears a little bit to a little bit of a different topic in politics. Uh, this person asks, are borders worth keeping if people are hurting? It seems that Christians have a reputation for looking down on immigrants who may cross illegally for necessity or survival. How should Christians show God's love to immigrants who may be illegal and who may even be brothers or sisters in Christ? Yeah. Um, biblically, uh, biblically, I think that we're on shaky ground uh, if we take a sort of a harsh view of immigration. Um, and the reason I say that is, is that the United States of America, for instance, has no eternal destiny, right? Uh, you have an eternal destiny, and you have an eternal destiny. I have an eternal destiny. The United States of America does not. Uh, the United States will be part of that creation that's rolled up, right? You know, uh, <clears throat> What, what, what does endure is the fatherhood of God over the brotherhood and sisterhood of men and women, mm -hmm. right? That's what's permanent. That's what lasts. Um, so that's the fundamental reality. 
Um, now, uh, I'm not going to tell you that that means that there should be no borders and no border control and no immigration procedures, because that would be madness, right? Particularly uh, in the kind of technological world we live in today, right? Uh, you know, if we had no way to protect against things, people could bring in uh, terrifying viruses or, uh, you know, even small nuclear weapons or, you know, all kinds of terrible things could happen. Um, so we need to have, we need to have some sort of a, a way of dealing with this, but, but we just always need to make sure that our motivation is good, right? That, that, that we're doing this for, for public order, that we're doing it for kind of reasonable safety and not, not because I don't want those people to come here, right? That's not a worthy Christian instinct, Right. So we, it just, it's all about kind of how we're thinking about it and what is the goal that we're aiming at yeah. when we think about borders. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, nobody come up. Uh, there are Christians in the Southern Baptist Convention churches that are registered Democrats and currently support Democratic presidential candidates. Considering that the Democratic Party is openly supportive of not just abortion, but late-term abortion, and government defining the religious institution of marriage instead of God-defined definition of marriage, would it not be true to say that these types of Christians are either, either biblically illiterate at the least or not Christians at all in the worst? Good luck with that. Yes. Yeah. That was, that was the small nuclear bomb I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is why we didn't want to send these to you beforehand. Yeah, well, so look, the, uh, I, I do think that the abortion issue is a problem, okay? I, I do think that we tend to underrate the importance of the life issue. I mean, a lot of times, uh, I understand, you know, I understand why people... Uh, vote Democrat. I understand why. I, boy, I've got a lot of friends who vote Democrat. Uh, read my Facebook page. You know, you'll see. Um, and when they do so, they are thinking that that is the most effective way to help the poor. Mm -hmm. um, that is the most effective way to stand with marginalized people. Uh, they're not doing it because they're they love abortion, right? Yeah. You know, I, I remember one year I had a student who. Uh, voted for Barack Obama, and, and uh, she was from Latin America. And, uh, and I said, so tell me, why did you vote for Barack Obama? She said, I don't love abortion, and I don't love socialism, but I don't like what the Republicans are saying about immigrants, right? You know, so, so people make these judgments, right? Um, but I do think that abortion is a really fundamental issue. Uh, and I, one of the things that I sometimes challenge friends on the left with is I say, so let's imagine that the issue wasn't abortion. Let's imagine that it was racial segregation. Would you then vote, if you agreed with somebody on everything but racial segregation, would you vote for them? And they're like, no, no, right? And I'm like, I think abortion is kind of like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but it's a discussion to have, and it's really, the last thing that is ever going to work is to address people from a position of contempt uh, or totally failing to attempt to understand where they're coming from. Uh, you know, I, 
that's just never going to work. You're never going to convince anybody of anything. And I think that's a really good point that, you know, you mentioned even just you were speaking with a friend who, who leans more left and votes more Democratic and Democratic. And it's good to be able to have these open conversations, you know, especially with people that you may disagree with. I feel like that doesn't happen enough in today's culture. You know? That's right. I see we have a question. I'll just say real quick. Just for you. Um, uh, just be real quick that I have, um, I'm part of an organization called Better Angels. And what we do is we have weekends where we bring together, we call them 10 reds and 10 blues, right? So 10 conservatives, 10 liberals. And the goal of the weekend is to talk to each other about politics, not to change each other's minds, but to learn to see each other as fellow human beings who are worthy of respect. And the interesting thing that happens is that when people come to the weekend, a lot of times they will say really bad things about the people on the other side. And then after the weekend is over, they're like, I actually like these people. You know, I mean, they, they recognize their common humanity. And so we really need to do that. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so my question is, um, I've, I've gotten to the point where I basically don't read any news or look at any Fox or CNN or anything of that nature. Just because you can't, I can't trust anything they say. It's all spin. Um, you look at one and it's pro one way and con the other any day. So my question is, from your perspective, what are some, as neutral as we can get, neutral sources that we can go to to find information for ourselves to make good educated decisions and choices? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, uh, another really good question. And um, I'll tell you what I do, um, because I agree, I, um, I have gotten to the point where I find almost all cable news unwatchable. Uh, because it's so blatant. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, honestly, that's, that's probably even true on Fox to some extent, uh, as well as CNN and MSNBC. Um, I have found that listening to CNBC is pretty good, actually. Uh, and the reason I say that is because it's uh, financially based, and the people who are watching CNBC do not want spin. They don't want the emotional element. They want real information, because they're like investors, you know. They, uh, and so I find that that tends to be delivered with a lot less sort of emotional freight. So I listen to that on Sirius, Sirius XM all the time. Um, for the same reason, I read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal, I think, is uh, much more fair uh, than the other newspapers. So I recommend both of those. Um, and of course, the other thing you can do is to, uh, you know, Richard Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon in one of his, uh, I guess it was 1962, he lost a race for governor in California. And uh, he gave this famous speech, you know, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And everybody thought that he was leaving politics permanently. And one of the things he said was, you know, just assign one lonely reporter to actually, actually tell the people what the candidate says. Well, you, you could just, in this age, it's possible to pay attention to what the actual candidate says. Uh, you know, <laughs> and to actually, you know, read some transcripts and things like that and try to follow, follow what they're actually proposing. First of all, thank you for, for joining us this evening. Um, I'm a note taker, so I'm gonna read. <laughs> 
how do you feel or what do you feel Scripture says about our responsibility as followers of Christ towards social charity versus what the Constitution says the role of government or the people is in the same area? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, it's, it's very interesting. The Old Testament is fascinating on this issue. Um, but the thing that you have to understand is that the Old Testament world is a theocratic world, right? You know, the um, re- religious and political power are one, right? And so you have these fascinating things like, you know, well, debts only last so long. Uh, and you have to leave the corners of your property for the poor people to forage and things like that. Uh, and so we don't live in that world. And we have to figure out, you know, so, so how does this work? What is our responsibility? Uh, I think it's very interesting. If we think about the names of hospitals, what kind of names do you think about, right? Like, you know, St. Mary's Hospital, Lutheran Hospital, Baptist Hospital, right? You know, all this stuff like that, right? Why is that? Why was the, why was the church in the... Well, that because when, when modern healthcare is kind of first emerging, the churches took it upon themselves right, to really get into this and to provide for people and to, you know, uh, nowadays it's all shot through with federal funding and things, so it's a totally different sort of a deal, right? Uh, government, government is such a different sort of a thing now than it was, say, 100 years ago, right? Uh, so that makes it difficult. But I think that, I think that the... Uh, I guess what I'm going to say is, is that on the whole, the Bible would be kind of agnostic about sort of the big government, small government question, right? That you could, you could kind of go either way and you could justify it. Um, I tend to be one of those people who prefer small government just because I fear the impact of sin mixed with power. Um, but in any case, I, I will say this, it's clear that Christians are required to uh, be working to take care of the poor, right? That uh, w- however you're doing that, right? Whatever that looks like. And, and even if the government is doing a lot, it's not okay to say, well, the government is taking care of that. I don't have to worry about it. So uh, it's clear to me that it's a major priority for Christians, but in terms of what is our mechanism that's not clear to me, other than to say the church. <laughs> I mean, the church is the, the church. The, if you want to say, you know, what is God's strategy for this hurting and lost world? The answer is the church. So maybe that's our answer. Yeah, well, our Constitution, I don't want to get geeky, but our Constitution if we had the founding fathers here today, the way our constitution operates today would be unrecognizable to them, okay? They, they made a constitution that really uh, gave the federal government a, a short list of specific powers, right? And we don't follow that at all, right? So, you know, I, yeah, the, we, the constitution... The const- if, if the question is, is the Constitution a small federal government constitution, the answer is yes. Yep. Um, my, 
I can't reach. I'll just, a question has to do with voting. So the last election, I had a lot of friends um, write in. Oh, can it move? Thanks. <laughs> uh, write in a candidate or choose someone who you, you know they're not going to win um, because they said it was like choosing which fork to sick a sock or which top socket or box box. I can't talk anymore. Yeah. Bottom side. Where am I going to stick my fork? Right. Good, good yeah, thing so, not to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so, and so <laughs> I understand why they would have chosen to vote for a candidate who they knew would not win. And now we come into this next election and Christianity Today says you're evil whichever way you vote. I'm misrepresenting them, I'm sure. Um, so, but you had earlier mentioned we have a responsibility... Um, I don't remember the exact words you used, but we have a responsibility because our government has given us this. God has blessed us with this responsibility. So what is your response to that? Do you vote for who you believe is the lesser of two, I don't want to say evils, but or um, do you think that it is morally better to vote for someone who has no chance of winning and your vote just being lost. So does that make sense? Yeah, it, it so. totally makes sense. Um, uh, but you know, I, even if somebody votes for somebody who they know cannot win, um, I don't view that as a useless activity. And the reason I say that is, is that um, let's imagine that, that you know, a few million people wrote in somebody, right? that would send a message. That would be meaningful, right? They, they, would, not, they would not choose the person who was going to become president, but it would be meaningful. Um, <clears throat> with regard to myself, I will tell you, uh, in the last election, I remember, I got... ...war two. You know, after the disaster of Hitler, uh, the Christian Democrats came to power, and they have mostly been in power in Germany since that time. And um, I think that's actually a pretty good model for Christian political engagement. You know, uh, I've written about that. I'd be happy to share that with you or anybody else. Um, but I would, I would love to see... That, so there's an American version of that party that has formed. It's called the American Solidarity Party. And... Um, I, I think it would be a respectable move to vote for them, actually. Uh, and m maybe some people will. They're easy to find on Facebook, and, you know, they have, a, they have candidates. All right, so we're going to end uh, with this last question. Uh, and I think this last question kind of just it wraps everything up well together, I believe. And that is, uh, how do we use politics as a door to share the gospel? It's a really good question. Yeah. Um, well, I think that the biggest thing that I would say is that I think that politics does a very good job of showing us the inadequacies of the human kingdom, right? Yeah. Uh, there are so many ways in which the human political efforts are just one after the other replicating the Tower of Babel, right? Mm -hmm. We're just building the Tower of Babel over and over and over again, you know, and it gets swept away, uh, but, we're, but we're determined to do it. 
And, um, and I think about so many of the things that have just come to ruin, come to grief, have ended up hurting more people than they ever helped, uh, people's lifetimes practically wasted in these oppressive efforts. Uh, <clears throat> and I think that to some extent we need to stop seeking secular salvation. Um, you know, and, and instead... Uh, instead take more responsibility for our lives and probably invest ourselves more deeply in the church and less deeply in politics, right? Uh, You know, what I said about the church, I mean, I I think that even among Christians, very many of us put politics first. Like, we think it's the most, and I'm here to tell you, I have dedicated my life to politics. I know it's not first, right? Other than in the sense that Jesus Christ is the one true king of planet Earth, right? Uh, That's the fundamental reality. And politically, I actually think the best thing I can do is help people to believe that, right? The best thing I can do is to help them see that uh, the real person you should be concerned about is not Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Elizabeth Warren or, you know, Pete Buttigieg or whatever. Jesus Christ is the king of planet Earth, and that's the fundamental reality. And the sooner we realize that, and align our lives with that, then we can live in harmony. You know, uh, Jamie K. Smith has a nice way of putting it. He talks about living with the grain of the universe, right? And that's what it is to follow Jesus Christ, ultimately. And that's what we need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, Yes, so thank you, Dr. Baker, for coming and talking with us, and thank you, Michael and Ethan, for leading our discussion and anyone who submitted questions or came up and asked questions, Um, but you might want to know more about Dr. Baker, or you might have questions for him, so you can find him on Twitter, at Hunter Baker, Um, you can look for him on Facebook, and um, his email is hbaker.com at uu.edu. He also has a blog space, um, hunterbaker.wordpress.com. So those are all ways, I know I said those kind of really fast, but if you want, um, you can come ask afterwards and um, we can give it to you again. Um, You might want to look at the books that he's written to um, find out more. Um, So next week we're going to have Paul Copen come and he's going to be speaking on the topic of is God a moral monster? Um, he's going to be tackling some tough passages in the Old Testament. So if you have any questions for him, you can submit them just like you did for um, Dr. Baker. You can um, email us at truthfordoubt.com. Um, there's also a number you can text. I'm sorry, at gmail.com. Truthfordoubt at gmail.com. Um, uh, yes, and there's a number you can text as well, which I don't have memorized. But it's it's written different places. We can tell it to you. But um, but if you want to find out more about Truth for Doubt, the Truth for Doubt ministry, you can go to truthfordoubt.com, and um, which is actually .com. You can follow us on Instagram, and that's truth and the number four doubt. Um, or you can um, email us as well. So if you're interested in supporting this podcast, am I get, am I getting too loud? I'm sorry. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash T4D or truthfordoubt.com slash give. And if you decide to support this ministry, you get exclusive 
access to podcasts and other interviews that we may have. So um, if you have any questions, just come up and ask us after. But again, thank you so much for coming. I learned a lot, and I I'm, think I'm going to be following you, especially during this next election coming up to find out all that I need to know. So thank you very much, and thank you to everyone for coming.